morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9? As we have mentioned many times in our study of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew was a Jew who wrote his Gospel primarily to the Jewish people. Not that, of course, we can't glean from it, and we do, of course. But he wrote primarily to the Jewish people to present Jesus to them as their long-awaited Messiah and King. And to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel, the one whose coming was foretold in the Jewish Scriptures, he quotes 16 Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament and identifies each of them with Jesus by saying these words, and you'll see this over and over in Matthew's Gospel, 16 times. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying. Very important that Matthew ties Jesus back to the Old Testament messianic prophecies, because you're not going to ever present someone to Israel as their Messiah who doesn't fulfill the prophecies that the uh, prophets in the Jewish scriptures uh, wrote about the Messiah as having fulfilled, or would fulfill when he came. One of the main things the Jewish people were told to look for, that would testify to the reality as to whether or not a man was in fact the real Messiah of Israel, because Israel was constantly dealing with false messiahs. How are we going to know the true Messiah when he comes? Well, God says, I'm going to tell you. And in the Old Testament prophecies, he talked about how he would have the power to heal the sick. We've quoted just one of those passages in the past, Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5 in the beginning of verse 6 which says that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing and so on. Those were things that the Messiah would do when he came. And so as Matthew has been presenting to us Jesus as Messiah and King of Israel, in chapters 1 through 4, he introduces us to the person of the king. In chapters 5 through 7, he introduced us to the principles of the king, the Sermon on the Mount. And then starting in chapter 8 and working through chapter 9, he then gives to us the power of the king. And he does this by recording ten miracles that Jesus performed, which demonstrated his power and authority over things like disease, demons, nature, and over death itself. But I want you to understand something, all right? Jesus' miracles were not only designed to authenticate his ministry as Messiah, they were also designed to demonstrate his love and compassion for hurting people. Let's not forget that, okay? And you see that he showed that love and compassion first and foremost to the most disadvantaged, the least of society. Yes, these things point to his Messiahship. Yes, they authenticate his ministry as Messiah. But you know what? These miracles were done to real people people that he cared about, people that God cares about, the people that nobody else wanted to deal with. Uh, they were the ones that he went to first. They were the ones that followed him the most, the tax collectors, the sinners. And so Jesus gravitated to those people that society had cast out as worthless, as uh, hopeless, and so on. And Jesus Christ ministered to them primarily, and they made up the bulk of his ministry. All right, this morning, let's get into chapter 9, and let's read verses 1 through 8. Which says, so he got into a boat, crossed over the Sea of Galilee, came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, 
be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Well, not really to men, to one man, okay? Uh, we'll see that in a moment. Let's first of all look at the ministry setting in verse 1. We read, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Now, this very incident is also recorded in Mark 2 and Luke 5. And for us to get a full picture of what happened, we'll kind of bounce back and forth to some of these. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So Mark tells us that this incident took place in Capernaum. In Capernaum. In fact, most of Jesus' public ministry was conducted up in the region of the Galilee, and Capernaum became his headquarters. Capernaum was the city he did more miracles and healed more people in than any other city. In fact, as we have said, it became his headquarters. He spent most of his time up in the Galilee, and when he was up there, he lived in Capernaum. So much so that verse 1 of Matthew 9 tells us that by this time, the city was already referred to as his own city. His own city. Next, we're introduced to a paralyzed man in verse 2. It says, we read, Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Mark tells us, Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And since this paralyzed man was brought to Jesus while lying on a bed, it indicates that his paralysis was pretty severe. It was pretty severe. In fact, it might have been so severe by this time that it had affected his vocal cords. We don't see anything recorded in any of the Gospels as to this man speaking anything. It could be that it was that um, pronounced. You know, in those days, uh, they didn't have wheelchairs, of course. And so those with severe forms of paralysis were dependent upon the kindness of others to literally carry them from one place to another. What made matters worse, and just kind of giving you some of the context, the background. If it wasn't bad enough this poor guy was severely paralyzed, what made matters worse was the Jewish belief that all disease and physical infirmities were the result of sin. Either the sin of the person afflicted, or they even believed it could have been the sins of his parents or grandparents if the guy was born with some kind of physical deformity or uh, infirmity like blindness or paralysis or some other genetic defect. Can you imagine living in that time hard enough to get around and to deal with something like paralysis? They didn't have all the things that we have in our society for the handicapped and all. And uh, it was pretty much you fended for yourself. And here's a guy that suffered with this terrible infirmity. And on top of it, you know, because everyone believed that uh, that you were in sin in some way, that you have this thing, 
you can imagine how that must have been much worse to deal with, you know. This was the attitude that the people had, that, you know, you're, you're in the condition you're in because you've committed some sin. And I believe this was clearly the attitude reflected by Jesus' disciples when they passed by a man who had been born blind from birth. And in John 9, they asked the Lord, Rabbi, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? Reflecting the attitude of that day, that all sickness is traced back to some sin. And of course, Jesus said, it wasn't this man or his parents, but that God might receive glory. You know, let me just say this. Um, all sickness is ultimately attributable to sin, the sin of one man, Adam. Sickness, disease, and death were not in the world before Adam's sin. So yes, all sickness can be traced back to Adam's sin. That's when sickness entered into the world. But listen to me, not everyone who has got a disease or a handicap is because they have sinned in some way. Look, sickness is just a part of the, of the reality of this fallen world. And yes, it all came as a result of one man's sin. But don't let's not think for a second that people who suffer with sicknesses, it's directly related to some sin in their own life. That's not true. In fact, one author made a, this further observation when he said, and I quote, Like his fellow Jews, the paralytic no doubt believed his paralysis was direct punishment for his own sin or that of his parents or grandparents. And that thought must have added immensely to his suffering. In his own mind and in the minds of most of the people who saw him, his paralysis was a vivid representation of his own sinfulness and of God's judgment. That belief gave crippled and diseased people even more reason to shun crowds, end quote. Well, beginning of verse 2, then we read, Then behold, they brought to him, to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. They brought. Who brought? Well, we know that Mark says it was four guys, four men. In Luke 5.18 we read, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring and lay before him, before Jesus. Mark tells us that this man's bed and it was more like a, don't think of a four-post bed. It was more like a stretcher, all right? Uh, just something to lay him on. We would think of a, a stretcher. And that this man's stretcher was carried by four men who were no doubt his friends or maybe his cousin's family, you know, something like that. You were, again, dependent on people to take you uh, physically to places if you had to go places. And uh, usually it was your closest friends or even family members who would do this. In Luke 5, verse 19, we read, and when they could not find how they might bring him in because, the, because of the crowd, they went up onto the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Now look, as we've already mentioned many times, roofs of houses back then were flat and they were used as patios, often to sit up there in the cool of the day or to sleep up there in the heat of the night. And because they were functional, they were patios. If you go to Israel today, you will notice, uh, as we have in our, our trips to Israel, uh, that you can see the, the, the patio furniture on the roofs in Israel. Uh, even to this day, they still use their roofs, which are flat, to, as patios. And so what they did was they would build steps uh, along the side of the house that would lead all the way up to the roof, which, again, was their family area, a patio area, okay? Well, here's the deal. This guy's friends bring him to Jesus, right? And they come to the house, and 
it's packed. I mean, it's it, they're coming out the, the the front door. They're standing outside the windows trying to hear what Jesus is saying. It's packed out, all right? So these guys can't bring him into Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they figure, look, next best thing, let's take him up to the roof, which they did. And all of a sudden, they start to dismantle the roof tiles. Can you imagine being in a, a Bible study there with Jesus teaching? And, and all of a sudden, you're hearing scratching on the roof and some strange you know, noises coming from the ceiling. And, and all of a sudden, dust starts falling down. You know, And all, here's light all of a sudden. Somebody takes a roof tile off. And here you're looking up at the sky. And then they take more off until they finally get enough off where they, would, could, they lowered him down on ropes attached to his stretcher right there in front of Jesus. And here, you know, here comes the guy there. And I'll tell you what. What did God, we all had friends and brothers and sisters in Christ that loved us enough to go to that length, right, to help us out. I think this is one of the things I love about this story, by the way, was the tenacity of this man's friends. These guys were men of faith, too. They knew that Jesus could heal their friend. And they believed he would heal their friend because they knew he was a man of compassion. But you know what? They didn't just believe it with their heads. They put feet to their faith, as the saying goes. And they said, you know what? We're going to bring him to the Lord. It's one thing to know that Jesus can help somebody. It's another thing to take it upon yourself to do whatever you can to bring that person to the Lord. And we know that for us it's not always a physical thing. Sometimes... We have people that are paralyzed in their walk with God. They have walked away from the Lord for whatever reason. And they're not willing to come to Jesus. We can still bring them to Jesus through our prayers. I have seen numerous examples of people that have walked away from the Lord for whatever reason. And there were Christians who never gave up on them. Their family right here who prayed for them. And prayed every prayer meeting they were mentioned. Every time we gathered for prayer they would be brought up. And then all of a sudden, God began to do something. He began to stir their heart. And they became disillusioned. They, be, they, they came to their senses and said, what am I doing back here in the world? I left this a long time ago. What am I doing back here again? I need to get back to the Father's house. And thank God for Christians who go to those lengths, who have faith that God can help, but don't just stop there. They take it upon themselves to bring that person to Jesus faithfully. You know, in Scripture, we are called to persevere in the face of obstacles. We are called to keep pressing on until we see the obstacle overcome and the victory won, aren't we? The Bible has a lot to say, especially the New Testament, about us persevering. The Greek word means to hang in there under pressure, to hang in there, to keep pressing forward, to not give up, to not let obstacles stop us if we know it's God's will. I mean, do we know it's God's will that people get saved? Of course we do. But don't you dare give up on your spouse who's unsaved, or on your children, or on your friends. You keep bringing them to the Lord. You know you're in God's will. But so often we, we give up when, when we hit a roadblock, or we face an obstacle. We, you know, if the problem isn't overcome quick enough, we want to just give up. You know, I was reading about uh, William Wilberforce, who was... Um, a member of British Parliament uh, back in the 1800s. And um, God laid it on his heart to begin to fight against the slave trade. So every year he would, tr he would try to introduce legislation to ban the slave trade. But of course he was met year after year with opposition. Many of the members of Parliament actually made money off the slave trade. And this was unheard of in the early days when he started this crusade. 
to, to abolish slavery. We need slaves to do our work and so on. But Wilberforce was a man of God and a man of faith, and he kept persevering. And in the beginning, he was laughed at all the time, being that radical nut job that wants to abolish slavery. And they would mock him and make fun of him, but he kept persevering. He, kept pers- he knew his cause was just, and God was calling him to fight for, to end slavery. And so after 20 years of fighting, he won over the hearts of Parliament, and the slave trade was abolished. 20 years. I mean... The bigger the fight, guys, the longer the fight usually. But if it's worth fighting for, it's worth hanging in there. I I also think of Thomas Edison, who uh, spent years trying to develop a filament that would work to make the incandescent light bulb a reality, right? He tried thousands of elements. In fact, he tried 6,000 vegetable fibers alone. 6,000 vegetable fibers alone. And, you know, the reporters would say to him, Mr. Edison, aren't you discouraged? You have failed 6,000 times. He said, I never got discouraged. And I would say to them, I haven't failed 6,000 times. I have eliminated 6,000 possibilities. You know what that's called, folks? That's called perspective. It's amazing how two people can look at the same situation. One sees the glass half empty. The other sees the glass half full. It's all in how we view our situations. The classic biblical illustration of this, you remember the story of Elisha? Elisha was quite a prophet. And he prophesied in the days when Ben-Hadad was ruling up in Syria. And Ben-Hadad was the perennial enemy of the king of Israel. And Elisha ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so on numerous occasions, Ben-Hadad laid an ambush for the king of Israel, knowing that his army would go through a certain area and he was going to ambush them and defeat them. Well, every time he laid an ambush for the uh, Israeli army, uh, God would reveal it to Elisha, who told the king of Israel, don't go that way. Uh, Ben-Hadid has put, has put a trap there for you. Go some other way. Well, this happened, I don't know, three, four, five times. Finally, Ben-Hadid calls his generals in and says, look, which one of you guys is a spy? Somebody's working for the king of Israel here because every time we lay an ambush, I don't know, he finds out about it and goes some other way. Now, come on, fess up. Who is it? And his general said, no, no, king, you got it all wrong. We're loyal. But there's a prophet in Israel. Man, that guy knows everything. You can't talk to your own wife in in your bedroom about what he doesn't know about it. (laughs) So the king says, well, where is this guy? Well, he lives in Dothan. Well, let's go and get him. So that night they marched, you know, and to Dothan, the armies. And the next morning, Gehazi, which was Elisha's servant, goes outside to get water. And he sees all around the city now that the Syrian armies encircled the city. He panics, drops the water bucket, runs in to his master, says, Elisha, we've had it. Look, the Syrian army has surrounded the city. And Elisha kind of rolls over in bed and says, Lord, open his eyes. Gehazi goes back outside and finds out that now he sees all around the Syrian army are giant angels with fiery chariots. I mean, now it's gone from alas, we've had it to alas, they've had it. And that just goes to show you when you look at a situation from the eyes of flesh, often we feel discouraged and defeated. If you see things through the eyes of faith, hey, who's on the throne? And who do you belong to? Therefore, if God is for us, who can be what? Against us. Wasn't it Martin Luther who said, one plus God is a majority? 
We've got to see things through the eyes of faith, guys. And that faith comes from God's promises and His Word. You've got to be in the Word, right? And be tenacious. Don't give up. Keep persevering in whatever God has called you to do. All right. So far we've looked at the ministry setting, the paralyzed man, the tenacious friends. Number four, the forgiving Savior. At the end of verse 2, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You know, when Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, be of good cheer. He was saying to the man, You no longer need to feel condemned or afraid. I'm going to help you. How would you have felt at that moment if you were this guy? Your heart probably would have just leaped out of your chest practically, only to have it come crashing down the very next second when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. My sins are forgiven me. That's really not what I was hoping for, Lord. And I'm sure the guys still up on the roof holding the ropes were thinking, no, that's not why we brought him. Lord, we don't want you to forgive his sins. We want you to heal. We want him to walk. We don't care about his sins. We want you to heal his body. You know, isn't that the problem so often? We live in a society where people don't really think about sin too much. In fact, when you talk about it, they laugh at you because it sounds so archaic. What are you, from the 16th century or something? We've gotten past all that sin stuff, right? We're enlightened now. We're culturally savvy, you know? And we, you know, and it doesn't matter, you know, uh, uh, who you want to marry, how many you want to marry, men, men, women. It doesn't matter. We're, we're all beyond that, right? There's no such thing as sin anymore. Most people today don't think sin is a big problem, do they? I mean, these guys, they didn't care about his sins being forgiven. And most people that come to God for help in some way, shape, or form, uh, sin really isn't on their minds at all. People want God to bless their lives. But often, they're not really willing to look at their lives honestly. They want everything but what God wants to deal with. And that is the sin. The sin issue. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But hold on to that thought. Uh, we see the forgiving Savior. Verse 3, we see the indignant scribes. At once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. Mark records in chapter 2, verse 7, that they said, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And to that we say what? Amen? Amen? Something about Jesus saying, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Hang on to that thought for a second, all right? Because in verses 4 to 7, we come to really the heart of this passage. This is the main deal, guys. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit was wanting to communicate, the essence of this story uh, to us, starting in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, the Sadducees, and there were Pharisees there too, by the way, thought within themselves, this man blasphemies. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. I've called this point the revealed power. The revealed power. 
that Jesus Christ revealed to them at this moment that he had the power to forgive sins. Now, just a few things I want to look at quickly. First of all, Jesus' statement in verse 5 when he said, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? What is easier to say? Well, I don't know about you, but to me, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because nobody can prove that that really happened. Nobody can prove that anything has actually taken place. I could say, your sins are forgiven you. Well, nobody can verify that. Nobody can see it happen. Nobody can say, wow, their sins are gone. I just saw them all leave. You can't verify whether or not somebody has actually had their sins forgiven. But if you're paralyzed and I walk up to you and say, get up out of that wheelchair and walk. That's a lot tougher, isn't it? Why? Because now I've given you something observable. That if it happens, it proves I have authority and power to heal the sick. If it doesn't, it proves that, you know what, I'm a phony. And that's why some of these faith healers, when they're doing their thing on TV, and they're out there you know, at the end of their thing, and they're trying to show people they have the power to heal, and yes, somebody out there, Jane, uh, you know, has a back problem. Well, who, uh, Jane, right now, Jesus has just healed you. Well, we don't know who Jane is, and we can't verify anything, right? So there's no big deal to say things like that. But if Jane's sitting there in a wheelchair right in front of the guy, and he says, okay, Jane, get up and walk, and she can't get up and walk, well, we know the guy's a phony. Now look, Jesus, of course, being God, did have the power to forgive sins. But look, no one would have known that because they couldn't see that take place. They couldn't have verified it. So what does Jesus do? Well, he's going to prove he's got the power to forgive sins, and he's going to do it by using their own theology against them. You say, how so? Look, the scribes and Pharisees that we've already said all believed that sickness, all sickness and physical handicaps were the result of sin. They further believed those maladies or infirmities could not be healed until the sin was dealt with. In fact, one of the rabbis rabbis at this time, very well-known rabbi, said, and I quote, No sick person is cured from sickness until all his sins are forgiven. All the Jews pretty much believed this. That, look, if a person's sick, it's because they've sinned. And they're never going to be healed of their sickness until the sin has been forgiven them. So that when Jesus said to this paralyzed man, and this is how we use their own theology against him, when he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your bed and walk, and the man did, he got up, walked away, well, it should have proved without a shadow of a doubt to all of his critics that Jesus Christ had the power to forgive sins. Why? Because they themselves believed that, you know what, a person will never be healed unless their sins are forgiven. If this guy just got up and walked because Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk and go home, the guy did it, that should have been proof positive to all of these guys that Jesus not only had the power, listen, to forgive sins, but as they already said in Mark 2, verse 7, and this is where I want you to hang on to this thought, they said to him, you know, he blasphemes in their hearts, they said that, who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, well, you just said nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And God will not heal somebody until their sins are forgiven. So Jesus Christ, having forgiven this guy his sins, proved his sins were forgiven by having him get up, walk, and go home. You know what? This should have been proof positive to all you critics that Jesus Christ was not just a great prophet. Look, great prophets had come down the pike like Elijah and Elisha. They had power to do miracles. 
But Matthew wanted us to know, and the Holy Spirit wanted us to know, that Jesus Christ was not just another great prophet who had power to heal. He had the power to forgive sins. Because he was more than a prophet, he was God incarnate. And they should have fallen on their faces right there and worshipped him as God and Messiah. Of course, they didn't because their hearts were too hard. Their hearts were too hard. No matter what the Lord Jesus did by this time, they had passed the point of no return, spiritually speaking. They had hardened their hearts so much, there was no way they were going to ever believe. Now, of course, the multitudes were amazed. Verse 8, when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Mark 2, verse 12 says, So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Okay. We never saw any- This is great. We're coming back to this guy's ministry next week because we never were entertained like this guy's entertaining us. You know, the multitude, they're, they're entertained easily, aren't they? Jesus wasn't about entertaining people, as so many in ministry seem to be doing today. The clueless multitudes are always easily entertained. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ wasn't trying to entertain anybody with his miracles. He was trying to point out what is most important to God and most important to the human race, and that is that sin is dealt with. That sin is dealt with. I mean, the multitudes, they were amazed at the miracles. Just like so many today who are amazed with signs and wonders and running all over the place, looking for churches that will entertain them through ministries that will do signs and wonders. Not recognizing that the greatest thing that God wants to deal with is the issue of sin. That's the most important thing. In fact, that's why Jesus Christ came the first time. Remember now, when Mary had become pregnant, Joseph, who was betrothed to her, uh, knew uh, he wasn't the father. So he had plans to put her away privately. And that night, one night, uh, in a dream, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is the issue. That is the whole point of why Matthew recorded this story. To show us that Jesus Christ had authority over sin. And folks, that is the most important thing that Matthew wanted to show us. And the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ had the power to forgive sins. Look, so we wind this down. The greatest problem, listen, the greatest problem facing the human race isn't Islamic fundamentalism. It isn't global warming. It isn't world hunger or disease. Or if you're an American, it isn't the, the American economy. All those things are important. But the greatest problem facing the human race is and always has been the problem of sin. More than any temporal problem we have. Because we all live in the temporal, don't we? And because we live in the temporal, we get preoccupied with the temporal. God lives in the eternal. And God is always trying to do for us uh, work for our eternal best. And that starts with the point of forgiving us of our sins by us receiving Christ, right? That's what God's up to. Because we live in the temporal, we're always coming to God and asking God to heal our sicknesses, fix our marriages, do this for us and that for us. Now, what is God saying? God's saying, okay, well, you've been praying for your husband or your wife or your uncle or someone else who is in bondage to alcohol and drugs. That's a pretty serious problem, God is saying. And you've been focusing on that problem. Okay, say I deliver that person from alcohol or drugs. Now they're a sober sinner. They're still going to hell if they die. 
So instead of praying for the temporal initially or specifically making it first and foremost, God is saying, why don't you pray that I use the situation that they have brought themselves into, how they have abused their, their freedoms to do things that have put them into bondage to alcohol or drugs of some kind or some other situation. Because I will use those very things to bring them to the end of themselves to deal with the real issue that I'm trying to get at, which is sin. And after, I, after they come to Jesus, yes, then I'll deliver them from alcoholism and drug abuse and this or that. But we're so locked into the temporal, we don't even realize that, you know, God is working in the eternal. And as believers, we ought to be saying, Lord, I don't know why I'm going through this financial crisis or this physical issue or whatever it might be. And Lord, I, I, I do ask that you would deliver me or solve the problem. But Lord, if you're using the problem for a higher purpose, I want that purpose to be done first in my life. Whatever it is, Lord, whatever you're trying to teach me, let me learn that lesson first. Because when I do, you'll take care of the other stuff. Very important, isn't it? God is wanting to deal with the issue of sin. Forgiveness. The word forgiveness basically means to send away, but it was used in a financial sense of sending a debt away. This was something that was very vivid to the Jewish people. They understood this very well. Because in the Jewish mind, all sin was looked upon as a debt that they owed God which is why they brought God an animal as payment under the old covenant sacrificial system. Because all sin was looked upon as a debt that was owed to God. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in uh, the uh, Lord's Prayer. He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because in the mind of God, all sin was a debt that we owed God. And in the Old Testament, God allowed an animal to be brought as a payment. In fact, God even, uh, even sketched out a beautiful feast day. One day a year, the day of Yom Kippur, where the nation all gathered in Jerusalem. And the idea was that God was going to remove from the nation its sins. Now, this was a national day of, of repentance, right? One author put it this way. He said, Israel's greatest holy day was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. On that day, the high priest selected two unblemished sacrificial goats. One goat was killed and his blood was sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice the high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on the animal. The goat was then taken out deep into the wilderness, so far that it could never find its way back. In symbol, the sins of the people went with the goat, never to return to them again. It was a beautiful enactment, wasn't it? Problem was, it didn't really remove their sins, did it? And God knew that. It looked forward to a future time when the ultimate sacrifice would come. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And upon, all, upon Him were all of our sins placed. And by His death on Calvary's cross, He took them out of the way. And Psalm 103, verse 12 says, He removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He drowns them in the sea of forgetfulness and remembers them no more. Look, the problem of sin is a problem that most people in our culture don't even take seriously. They don't even think it's a problem. I'm talking about unbelievers. Primarily, are the many unbelievers, if they even come to God, talk to God, or ask Him anything in prayer, it's usually for Him to help them with some physical situation, some problem, not realizing that their greatest problem is the problem of sin, which if they do not receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
someday, today, you receive Christ, your sins are removed into infinity. If you refuse Christ, someday you will be removed from God completely. And that's the problem. People don't think sin's a big deal. Sin has always been a big deal to God. And just because society laughs and jokes about it doesn't mean God doesn't take it seriously. Now, once you're a Christian, you've given your life to Christ, we're going to blow it. The Bible says when you blow it, you immediately come to God, confess those sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness. He removes those sins far from you. They are drowned in the sea of forgetfulness and remembered no more by God. Here's the problem. God remembers them no more. It's hard for us to forget them sometimes. It's hard for us to forget how we blew it, how we dishonored the Lord, how we failed our spouse, how we rebelled against our parents. Uh, It's hard for us to let go of some of the horrible things we have done in our lives, even after we've become Christians. But hear me. If you don't let go of those, because God has, if you don't, you will give the devil place and he will condemn you and he will, you will become paralyzed in your walk with God totally. You have got to understand and believe that when you sin and you confess those sins to God, he forgives you and it's over with. We have a problem believing that because we don't forgive that way with other people that have wronged us. You know, like the old saying goes, you know, somebody hurt us. And uh, did wrong to us, and they come in and apologize. Okay, yeah, I'll, forgive, I'll bury the hatchet, but I'm going to leave the handle sticking off just to grab it quickly. Next time you mess up, I'm not going to. And we don't forget, right? We say we forgive, but we really don't forget. But that's not true forgiveness. God forgives and forgets. That's complete. And so you know what? I don't know what you've brought into this room this morning. And maybe it's something that was so bad You can't hardly even forgive yourself. If you've come to God and you've confessed that sin, He has forgiven you. He has cleansed you. He looks at you and sees you as pure as Jesus, having never sinned because you're in Christ. Now, go out in gratitude and begin to walk with Him again. The devil, he wants to keep you under that condemnation. But Jesus Christ has paid for all of those sins. So let's not hold on to them. Let's let them go. And let God take them far, far away where they are forgotten. And so we can walk with him each day in close fellowship. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven our sins because we have received your son. And Jesus' blood has paid for every sin we have committed or will ever commit on this on this earth. And so, Lord, give us grace to just understand that, to live according to your grace, not to allow Satan to condemn us any longer with the sins of the past, but to walk in that beautiful fellowship with you now. And we just praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to the earth to die that you might forgive us all of our sins. And we just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.